Welcome to St. James Lutheran Church. Uh, glad you could join us this morning. Uh, of course, if you've been watching us regularly on the live stream, then this is nothing new for you. For those of you who have been attending in-person worship, uh, this is a little bit different. It, uh, we're meeting today just online, and um, I guess we as Americans have this notion of uh, progress being irresistible, and it feels like, well, we should be making progress here in this maybe feels like a setback, but it really isn't. One thing we've learned, I think most of us have learned over the past six or seven months is the importance of flexibility and adjusting, and um, that's what we're going to do this week. We'll do just online services this week, and then hopefully next week we'll be meeting together in person again. But either way, I'm glad that we can spend time together. This has been, it's nice that we have this option to be able to meet together online like this and worship with each other and hear, uh, hear from God's word, hear his voice in his word. I've got uh, just one announcement for you, actually two, uh, the one normal one this morning at 10.30 after this service, we'll be having a Bible study uh, on Zoom. If you'd like to participate in that and you did not receive the invitation in your email this morning, uh, shoot me a text or an email and I will send that to you in between this service and um, the Bible study at 10.30. The second announcement is our youth group uh, is going to get fired back up again. Next Sunday at 6 o'clock here at church, junior and senior high youth are invited to come uh, for a get-together. There's going to be some worship, there's going to be uh, some activities, and there's going to be an announcement about a really cool special um, service opportunity for the teens. That's next Sunday night at 6 o'clock p.m., and it's being led by Stacy Stocky. And if you are at all, um, if you have any questions at all about that, please get a hold of Stacy if you're in the area and you'd like to participate. Uh, that'll be uh, next Sunday night at 6 o'clock p.m. And it's also going to be a kickoff event, a back-to-school event, a kickoff event for uh, upcoming um, uh, future youth activities, regular youth activities. And uh, by the way, Stacy will be with us next week on the live stream and here in person uh, to give us more uh, information about that and to share with us uh, the vision for the youth group going forward. So join us again next week for that too. Okay, let's begin worship. Let's begin in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's confess our sins to God. O Almighty God, merciful Father, I, a poor, miserable sinner, confess unto you all my sins and iniquities with which I have ever offended you and justly deserved your temporal and eternal punishment. But I am heartily sorry for them and sincerely repent of them. And I pray you of your boundless mercy and for the sake of the holy, innocent, bitter sufferings and death of your beloved Son, Jesus Christ, to be gracious and merciful to me, a poor sinful being. Because of Jesus, God has forgiven all our sin. Hear the gospel of Christ from Romans chapter 5. Therefore, Paul says, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. The psalm reading this morning is a combination of Psalm 2, verses 6 and 7, and the entirety of Psalm 117, which, which is itself only two verses. So this is four verses, but I want to set it up a little bit for you because it's kind of confusing. The first verse I'm going to read from Psalm 2 is God talking. The second verse is the Messiah, the king that he mentions in, that God mentions in verse 1. It's the king, the Messiah, talking about God. And in the next two verses our uh, hymn of praise to God for his salvation. As for me, God says, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. 
I will tell of the decree, the Messiah says. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Praise the Lord, all nations. Extol him, all peoples. For great is his steadfast love toward us, and the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. Praise the Lord. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be. Amen. The Gospel reading this morning is from Matthew chapter 16. Jesus is discussing with his disciples who they think he really is. And now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Messiah.
Epistle reading this morning in the sermon text is from Romans chapter 8, verses 31 through 34. Uh, Let me read them now. Paul says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who was at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. So Paul's uh, done with his story, Romans chapter 5 through 8, and I, I almost said argument there. He actually hasn't really been making so much of an argument in the story that he's been telling from Romans 5 through 8, as he is telling a story, describing to us the path from the beginning of the world in the fall and God's plan for salvation, all the way up to what we've been talking about the past few weeks in Romans 8, all the way up to new creation. And now at this point, he's not going to sum up his argument, but he's going to say, what are we going to do with this story? The story that ends in the renewal of all things in Jesus Christ. Paul's about to make uh, an emotional appeal here. He's told the story, and now he's going to encourage us to remain steadfast in the reality of that story, to, re- to, to remain faithful in our own hearts, in our own minds, to the destiny that he has planned for us, this destiny of new creation. So that's part of his goal. He's doing two things here. Is he's saying, stay in the story. This is your story. Stay true to the story. Stay true to the ending, the good ending. The second thing is he's raising this issue of like between now and the new creation, It doesn't mean that we're going to feel like everything's okay. And especially here, it's going to feel sometimes that people are against us. What do we do with that? What do we do with human opposition on this path that we're on to new creation? It's an interesting thing. that It's it's, it's an interesting problem that he raises here. And I'll just tell you, we're going to get to this more next week. What he wants to do is he wants to underline in the midst of human objections to us, relationship problems, struggles that we have with other people, that the fundamental reality, that the, the, the foundation of our life in Christ, underneath that is God's constant and consistent love for us. And so, But today what he's going to do is he's going to set us up. There's going to be four rhetorical questions. We're going to look at the first three. Next week we're going to look at the fourth which is going to highlight God's love uh, for us. But today I want to look at the first three, which are all sort of similar. They all have to do with this notion of people being against us. But I think that you'll see with the answers that Paul gives to these three questions, it's three different angles. It's three different angles on people's opposition to us. And what does it mean to be new creation destined people in the midst of people who are against us? Now, each one of these three questions, all three of them rhetorical, they anticipate the answer, no, and then Paul will give a reason why the answer to that question is no. So the three questions are, if God is for us, who can be against us? Implied answer, nobody. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Implied answer, nobody. And then who is to condemn us? Implied answer, nobody. So, Each one of these three gets at struggles that we as humans tend to have with people around us, and sometimes just in our own heads, in relationship to other people around us too. And how does the gospel address these problems? So the problems are, 
What if people are against me? What if people don't accept me? And then the third problem is what if people blame me? What if people are against me? What if people don't accept me? What if people blame me? And I know those all three are kind of related, but there's different angles on there. So the first one is, what if people are against me? The first question he raises is, if God is for us, who can be against us? And the answer is nobody, because Jesus didn't spare his own son. We'll get to that gospel-centered response to that in just a second. But first let me point out, which I, I probably don't need to point out, because all of us experience this. There's a tendency in all of our minds to believe that people are against us to see opposition all around us. There's a show that Angela and I are watching right now. I always hesitate to bring up movies and shows I watch because I don't want to imply that I think that everything about it is good or great or that I even enjoy everything about it. But the show is Dark, and uh, it's a British show. And there's a character in this show who Angela and I both have come to uh, detest. He, is, uh, he sees conspiracies against himself everywhere. In fact, where we're at in the show right now, he's just fractured his dearest and closest relationship because he is convinced that this person has been conspiring against him when that's not true. And I just really, the, the thing about this guy is just completely self-centered and self-absorbed. And just talking to Angela about how just, I, I've just come to like root real hard against that character. But honestly, if you ask me objectively, Aaron, which character are you most like in Poldark? It's this guy. It's this guy. And the reason why is because he is this symbiotic relationship between paranoia and self-absorption. In fact, a paranoia, the sense that people are out to get you, and self-absorption, self-centeredness, are actually really, really closely, closely related. In 1992, there was a study in the Journal of Personality and Social Pathology, Social Psychology, which, did a, which studied this and drew a direct connection link between paranoia and self-centeredness. The study, uh, the study um, uh, uh, came to the conclusion that self-consciousness, you know, self-centeredness, heightens the tendency to engage in seemingly paranoid inferences. In fact, there's a direct relationship between self-consciousness and paranoia. People who find their identity in good looks who put a lot of stock in, I want to look nice. There's a direct relationship between that and the sense that people are gossiping about them, interestingly enough. People who find a strong identity in workplace achievements and career advancement, there's a strong, definite correlation between that and a tendency to see subversive workplace politics all around you, to assume that the people around you are trying to undermine your authority or trying to get your job from you. That's because, like, paranoia, this concern, are people against me, is definitely about me. If I'm concerned that people are against me, I'm being concerned about myself. Now, you'll notice what Paul doesn't say here. Paul, you know, this is an issue. He could say, people, you think that people are against you. Well, he could say, he could say, you're just imagining things. It's not true. Uh, but uh, that, that isn't helpful telling people that they're imagining things when they're imagining things isn't helpful. It doesn't actually help them to stop imagining things. Also, it might very well be the case that you're not imagining things, that actually people are against you. So Paul doesn't say, stop imagining things. But he also doesn't say, you know what, your problem is you're just focused too much on yourself. You're just too self-centered. That, that actually is the problem, as this 
study in the journal Personality and Social Psychology points out, as my own personal experience in my life points out, that it is the problem is I'm too self-centered. But telling me that I'm too self-centered doesn't help me either. Instead, what Paul does is he hits us with the gospel. God did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. If that's the case, then how will he not also give us all things? That all things there is new creation. Every single thing in the universe, as I said last week, as Paul's been saying the past couple weeks, every single thing in the universe is yours. It's your inheritance. You are an heir with Jesus, and that means it all belongs to you. You don't have to be worried that God, that, that, that people are going to be against you because God is determined. Everything that you're scared that people are trying to take away from you, God is determined to give you all those things. This is an argument from the greater to the lesser. If God is willing to, look, look what Paul is saying. Look how much cash God has in this game. Look how much he is invested. There's no way he's going to back out now. If God, has, if God has invested the blood of his own son in this, he's not going to bail on us now. The greater, most difficult thing was for God himself to become human and to live here and to die, to be raised from the dead for us. If he's gone to such great lengths to assure that we will be the inheritors with him of new creation, there's no way he's going to bail on that now. So gospel, this, and this, uh, this is an intentional echo here, this gospel echo here of a passage from Genesis 22 when Abraham offered up his son Isaac. Do you remember this, the, the sacrifice of Isaac? When um, God said to Abraham, uh, you know, sacrifice your son, and he goes to do it. And then God stops him at the last minute and says, in Genesis twenty-two twelve, 12, he says, I'm stopping you because now I see that you fear me seeing that you have not withheld your son, seeing that you have not kept back your son, your only son, from me. It's an interesting reason why Paul would quote this here. And the answer has to do with the original story. Why did Abraham sacrifice, why was Abraham willing to sacrifice Isaac? I, I worked with a woman one time who told me, uh, since I, we were at work, it was like on a Monday morning, and she said, yesterday my priest uh, preached on Abraham offering his son Isaac. And that just, it's just crazy kind of faith. That's, I, there's no way that I could have that kind of faith. In fact, I don't even understand that. It's, that's, you know, if, you, if you read the Abraham and Isaac story and you assume that the main point is that we should all be willing to sacrifice our children, then you're missing the point. God is never, ever going to ask you to sacrifice your children. Abraham's in a different boat than me and you because Abraham's child Isaac was the covenant child of promise. And Abraham knew, in fact, Hebrews chapter 11 tells us this. Let me read that to you from verse 19. Abraham reckoned that God was able to raise Isaac from the dead. Abraham knew, God promised me this son Isaac. He is the offspring that's going to bring salvation to the world. There's no way this kid's going to die. In fact, if for whatever bizarre reason God let me go through with this and I actually did kill Isaac, I'm convinced that God would raise him back from the dead. See, here's the, here's the gospel hope that's embedded in this notion of Jesus, of God not keeping Jesus back from us, tied to Abraham not keeping Isaac back from God, is that the resurrection of the dead is guaranteed. God has promised you all things. You will receive all things. It's no way, nobody can be against you because the gospel always wins. God wins in the end. Here's the second problem. What if people don't accept me? Look at verse 33. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Implied answer, nobody. Why? 
because it's God who justifies. This solution of people bringing charges against us, for Paul here, the solution is that God justifies us. Okay, religious language, what does it mean? What what does justification mean? Well, there's two things we need to ask about this text here, and the first is, you know, what is justification? And the second one is, who justifies us? Don't think of justification as a primarily religious word. Justification is... Justification is the reason that you give for why you're worthy of acceptance. Why should I be worthy of other people accepting me? I'll tell you why the other people part is important in just a second. Justification is justifying yourself. What right do I have to do what I do or to be who I... When I get up in the morning, I look myself in the mirror, what right do I have to hold up my head high? When I walk out on the street or when I go to work or when I'm with friends, what right do I have to be confident that I'm accepted there? The answer that that you give to that question is where you find your justification. That's what justification is. It's primarily a reason that we give ourselves why we believe we're accepted by other people. Okay, why other people? Here's the second part of the question. Who can justify you? Now, there's this postmodern Western myth that you can justify yourself. You'll hear people say this sometimes. You'll hear people say, I don't care what other people think about me. I just do what I do. I am who I am. And of course, you know that that's not true. It's anybody who says that to you, it's automatically a signal that they care very deeply what other people think about them. They're very concerned about what other people think about them. In fact, it's impossible to evaluate yourself objectively on your own. We as human communal creatures are programmed to take our cues for who we are from other people around us. I've said this before, I'll say it again. You only know that you're a funny person if other people laugh when you tell jokes. You only know that you're a smart person if other people think that you're interesting when you talk. You only know that you're a nice person if you have friends who care deeply about you because of the way you treat them. We know who we are by taking the cues from the other people, how they treat us in relationship to how we treat them. This is just a fact. Now the question is, where are you going to get your justification from? Your reason for why you are valuable, why you are worthy of acceptance, are you going to get that from other people? Are you going to get that from God? Are you going to get, are you a good parent? That's the question. And are you going to get your validation, your reason for believing that I am a worthy person because I'm a good parent? Are you going to get that from your kids? Are you going to get that from social media? Where are you going to get this from? This notion that you're beautiful. Do you get this from other people being attracted to you? That's going to be, this is a tough road to live on, taking our cues from other people like this. Because it's always going to let us down. Social media is never going to completely validate us. Nobody is, it's not the case that everybody will always think that we're intelligent or nice or beautiful are wealthy. Do you get your validation from your wealth? If you do, it means that you kind of have to divide yourself up into people who have what you have and people who don't have what you have. There's this sense that I've arrived and the circle that I'm in is somehow in a different spot than the larger circle with the people who don't have the money that I am in. But the problem with that, of course, is that there's always people who have more money than you. It's never the case that you'll always have that money. And if you get your justification from other people, it will always let you down. Instead, we should get our justification from God. Now, I know that for for those of you who are Christians, that's just kind of like, 
okay, yeah, cliche, you know, God justifies us. But let me argue this, is that a lot of times we think of this, you, you know, of God justifying us as like one part of our lives. So I need to be justified as attractive. So I need people to think that I'm attractive over here in this part of my life. I need people to think I'm intelligent over in this part of my life. I need people to validate my intelligence. Over here, I need God to get me to heaven someday. Yes, I need God to justify me over here. Let me argue that the justification is the whole thing. I can't, get my, I can't get validation for my beauty from other people over here and simultaneously get validation from God from something else over here. God doesn't just want to be the app. God wants to be the operating system. God wants to justify us, to give us our sense of self-worth himself by declaring us beautiful, by declaring us righteous, in fact, by declaring us accepted and beloved, no questions asked. God declares you to be his child, no questions asked. God declares you to be holy. God declares that you are a good parent. God declares that you are a good friend in Jesus Christ. What if you're not? God declares that you are. That's your fundamental reality. God accepts us. Who can, who, can, who can condemn you? Nobody, because God justifies you. God says you're worthy. Nobody else has a right to say, you know what, you're not funny enough for me to hang out with, or you're not wealthy enough to be in my group, or wow, you're not as good a parent as I am in their head. Nobody has a right to say that because God justifies you. God accepts you. Third thing, what if people blame you for stuff that goes wrong? I know I'm always afraid about this. In fact, I'm, I'm I'm way more, I personally, Aaron Miller, am way more motivated by making sure people don't think that I screw up than I am from the pleasure that I might get from people thinking I do a good job. Here's Paul's response to this in verse 34. Who can condemn you? It's Christ Jesus who died. Who can, who can call me a screw up because Christ Jesus died? Well, how does Christ Jesus' death answer my concern that other people are going to think I'm a screw-up. There's this uh, um, an Agatha Christie novel called Five Little Pigs where the main character, uh, the main character at the beginning of the story, her husband dies, and her husband is murdered. And she's the primary suspect. And in fact, lots of people think she's not guilty, but she's the primary suspect. And uh, when she's brought to trial... She refuses to testify to her own innocence. She refuses to give any reasons. And in the court, she's told, you have, to te- you have to defend yourself. If you don't defend yourself, you're going to be hanged. And she refuses to defend herself and goes to her death without ever, telling any- without ever in court saying, I did not do this, and here are the reasons why I couldn't have done this. Well, it turns out uh, that somebody else did it course, and that person is discovered uh, by the detective. But it turns out that she carried that lack of guilt, that innocence, she carried her innocence to her grave because she wrongfully was convinced that her own sister had committed the crime, and she was willing to die for her own sister. It's Christianity 101 right here, right? Nobody condemn you. Nobody can condemn you. Nobody can say that you're at fault. Because all the faults in the world have already been paid for. The innocent one has already gone to the gas chamber because we sinned. Nobody can ever judge you for that ever again. Now here's the deal is that we actually have committed the crime. 
we actually are at fault. And so what I'm not saying is, this is not true, this is just forget about it. When people blame us for stuff that's gone wrong, of course there is, a lot of times there's shame and guilt because we know that we have done something wrong. What I'm saying though is that the price has already been paid. People are going to blame you for being foolish. But there's all, there already was somebody who took on that foolishness for us. Remember the disciples were convinced that Jesus should not go to Jerusalem. This is foolishness. You're going to get killed there. And yet he insists on doing the foolish thing and uh, getting killed for us. People thought that he was insane. His own family thought that he was insane. But he was insane for us. He was ugly. Isaiah 53 says that he's so ugly that we couldn't even stand to look at him. But he was ugly for us. There's not a single thing about you that people could blame you for. Your looks, your bad decision making, your poor finances, your bad relationship mistakes that you've made. All of those mistakes, I'm not saying that they're not true. I'm saying that they've already been paid for. Nobody can condemn you because Christ Jesus has already died. And in fact, two other things that Paul tells us here, not just that, more than that he says, Christ Jesus was raised. And he's at the right hand of the God. He's at the right hand of God and he's interceding for us. Right now, the one who took on all the broken things that we've ever done is on our side. He's been raised from the dead, which means that all of the broken things that we ever did have been undone in his death and now done away with, obliterated by the power of his resurrection. And more than that, Right now, God is at the, Jesus is at the right hand of his Father, and he's interceding for me and you. He's telling his Father, nobody can blame these people. Nobody can condemn these people. I completely and utterly accept these people in myself. That's at the heart of the story. As we walk through our, the story, as the story of Romans 5-8 through 8 becomes the story of our lives, remember this, that the heartbeat of this story is our complete acceptance in Jesus Christ by God the Father, and that the story that he's writing, the story that ends in new creation, is a guaranteed good ending story for all of us in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. God, I pray this morning that you would, uh, again, that you would make this story our story, that you would convince us that we are the characters in this story, that, you're, that, that the main character, your son Jesus, has made us his brothers and sisters, made us fellow characters in this story, and give us the confidence to live in the hope of this new creation through everything. And especially this morning, God, give us the confidence to not take as much as possible by the power of your Holy Spirit to not take our justification cues from others around us, to not seek our sense of self-identity from others around us, to not find our value from others around us, but to find our value in you. Now, of course, Father, we need others around us. We need a community of Jesus around us to share that value, to share that justification, to share that acceptance with us so that we can experience that in community. But fundamentally, God, help us to seek this only in you. Help us not to self-justify. Help us not to others justify. But help us to see our justification in your son, Jesus Christ. Give us all good health, Father. Uh, keep us all safe from the sickness. For those who are sick this morning, and especially, I think, for those in our church who are sick, and there's uh, five to ten of us who have the virus right now. Uh, Father, please heal them. Uh, give them physical comfort and renewed safety. Father, I want to pray especially this morning that you would be with our youth group as it gathers again. Uh, Father, you could use this youth group to light a fire under our church to give us through them as we see you working in them and out through us to give us a heart for each other, 
a passion for your word, a heart for mercy ministries and taking care of the community, a passion for the way the gospel can be reflected by St. James Lutheran Church here in Glen Carbon. Uh, do that through them, Lord, and I pray that you would advance the ministries of our church, not in some sort of programmatic business way, but in a gospel kingdom-centered way, that the footprint of your glory would grow ever bigger and bigger here in St. James, here in Glen Carbon, through the ministry that your son Jesus is doing through St. James and through all the churches in the area. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus who loves us so much that he did not spare himself but came and gave himself up to die for us as our sacrifice. And more than that, was raised from the dead for us and now at your right hand is interceding for us even this moment. We pray this in his name. Amen. Let's confess our faith with the words of the Nicene Creed. If you can, join along with me. If not, you can say these words in your heart. I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth and of all things visible and invisible. And in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of his Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father by whom all things were made who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. And the third day he rose again according to the Scriptures and ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of the Father. And he will come again with glory to judge both the living and the dead, whose kingdom will have no end. And I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets. And I believe in one holy Christian and apostolic church. I acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins, and I look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. And now let's pray together in Jesus' name the prayer that he taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace. Amen.